A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 3 and 4. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, um, it is... Uh been said that there's two things we really, really need to know, uh, you and ourselves, uh, neither of which are very clear, <laughs> neither of which are very easy to know, and yet I thank you that you're a good communicator. And so will you, by your word, communicate yourself, make yourself clear so that we can see you in Jesus Christ. But we also ask that you will unveil ourselves and our hearts, and particularly those areas of our hearts where we are vulnerable to the attack of evil. Don't let us be naive and don't let us be arrogant, but humble us and grant us to see ourselves in light of your truth and defend us from every attack of the enemy. So come powerfully among us now and do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. And um, take a look at that Luke reading. Now, here's the thing. I think this is a very uh, odd reading. It's an odd reading for a lot of reasons. My guess is that if you grew up in church, if you have a religious background, then this reading is probably uh, at least vaguely familiar to you. If you did not grow up in church, then um, it's probably not very familiar to you. And in that case, you might have an advantage for this reason. Um, just imagine uh, 
that you that you've ne you're not familiar with this reading. And I was to tell you, hey, listen, today we're going to tell a story about a battle, a moral battle between the devil and Jesus. And in this battle, the devil is going to tempt Jesus. Now, I don't know. I mean, if I had never read this reading before, I would hear that and I think, man, that's a banner headline. Like, that is going to be quite a match, right? Like, nobody tempts better than the devil, and nobody should be able to, like, counter better than Jesus. Like, this is, this is going to be like a moral cage match. This is going to be amazing, I could imagine. And then I would start thinking, hmm, I wonder, like, if the devil's going to tempt Jesus himself, what's he going to lead with? Of all the devil's, like, temptation repertoire— What's it gonna well like what's what's the pointy edge of his spear gonna be? Like it's you know, it's gonna be juicy or something, I would think. And then with that in my mind, I come to this reading and I start reading it, and I get to verse three, and here's the devil's opener in terms of tempting Jesus. The pointy edge of his temptation spear ends up being making bread. Like I think that's a bit odd. And then, um, a little bit later, like, ma making bread almost seems wholesome, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it smell wholesome? And then, if you go to the third temptation, the third temptation sort of sounds like base jumping, uh, which, I which one shouldn't do without equipment, but nevertheless, it still doesn't seem like massive moral catastrophe. Does it? And so all of that, may, the, now the middle one might be world domination, that, and that seems like it's more in the pocket. You know, that one's, that one's kind of, okay. But I'm slightly being silly, but do you see my question? My question is, what is happening here? What is the significance of these temptations that at least the first one and the last one do not on the face of it look like catastrophes? I mean, I could definitely suggest some other temptations that I've experienced that would be a little bit more spicy. What? And it's important that we figure this out. And the reason it's important that, it's, that we figure this out is that temptation, friends, is a massively crucial and serious thing. And it's serious because we all know, I think, that there's something sinister in the world. There is, if you interrogate your fears and your fury, you'll realize very quickly that evil is a terrible reality. And when you realize that evil is a terrible reality in this world, it all of a sudden gets much more frightening when you look at yourself and when you look at, and when I look at myself and I realize that I'm gullible and that there is, it is easy to persuade me to become a participant in evil. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a participant in evil. But if you and I think that we're immune to being uh, duped into being a participant of evil, or even worse, willingly giving ourselves to being a participant of evil, if you don't think that that's a danger that confronts you, then I fear you are naive. 
And so we need to pay attention to this passage and, and figure out what it's about because we need to figure out how to recognize evil and how to resist it. And, uh, and you won't be surprised to hear me say that uh, I think this passage is full of insight. And I'm going to point out three things. Three things about resisting evil, three things about temptation. Temptation is a battle of identity. Number two, temptation is a battle of methods. I know that seems, sounds odd, but we'll get there. And number three, temptation is a battle of trust. Identity, methods, and trust. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, temptation is a battle of identity. This is going to be the bread bit. Um, take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when the days were ended, he was, putting it mildly, hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Okay. Uh, everybody's tempted uh, to raid the cookie jar? That's not what this is about. Um, take a look more closely at what the devil actually says. Uh, he, the devil leads with the word if. If you are the son of God. Now, that's a crucial clue because what it means is that the devil is going to frame this whole conversation. In fact, he's going to come back to it in the third temptation. He's going to frame the whole conversation around a question of identity. If you are the son of God. In other words, are you the son of God? Uh, prove that you are the son of God. What does it mean to be the son of God and how are you going to express that? This is important because the devil actually doesn't lead with the bread thing. The devil leads with the question of identity. And as soon as I say that, I think we can begin to see how it, we can relate to it. Because questions of identity, like who am I? Who am I really? Who should I be? And how in the world do I figure all of that out? Those are questions that lurk, don't they? They lurk just beneath the surface in all of our lives, and they impact just about every aspect of our lives. And it's not new with our moment. It's a really old question. And the devil knows what he's doing. But then look at what the devil does next. He goes from, if you are the son of God, the question of identity, to make these stones into bread. Now, again, the important thing is not the bread. Jesus, later on in the book of uh, Luke, is going to do some really cool things with bread, and it's going to be great. What The issue is desire. Uh, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's close to starvation. In other words, his desires are at fever pitch. And therefore, the devil wants to create a kind of alliance between Jesus's identity questions, if you are the son of God, and his ferocious desire, his hunger, his need for food. And the message is something like this. Jesus, express your identity by centering your desires, your physical desires. Make your identity rise and fall based around your pursuit of your physical desires. 
And that hits close to home, doesn't it? Uh, one of the most intuitive paths to answer the questions of identity is to look within ourselves and interrogate our strongest desires, right? I mean, we all know this. Um, uh, uh, the idea is I am most me when I am following uh, my strongest desires or when I am being authentic to them. And it's a forceful line of thought for many reasons, but one of the forceful reasons is the same reason that this was a forceful temptation for Jesus. Namely, uh, his hunger was a legitimate need. Yes? Absolutely. And it's important that we understand that our desires, physical or otherwise, are important. There's nothing in this that means to discount the significance of the desires we experience in the various ways that we experience them. So what's the problem? Well, to understand the problem, you need to put a pause on this temptation and go to his baptism. Look at the top of the reading and remember the scene. Jesus has just been baptized by, the, uh, by John the Baptist, and then this happens. This is chapter 3, verse 22. It says this, And the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, pause there. Do you see the bond of affection between Jesus and God the Father? So Jesus is praying, and I, this, I mean, it must have been an, a remarkable experience. Um, a voice, uh, God's voice comes and says, this is my son, and I am so pleased with him. And some of us here would give almost anything to hear our fathers, uh, our biological fathers say that to us, right? Now, there's a very good reason why some of us would do almost anything to hear that from our biological fathers. Um, there's a psychiatrist, um, Dr. Curtis Thompson, and uh, he says uh, that every one of us was born looking for a face that's looking for us. And it's a good little, little line because it, it, it reminds us uh, that when you and I were born as humans, um, uh, no one needed us, needed really to tell us to start looking for a face. It's something, it's something embedded within the human mind. And uh, the face that hopefully we found, perhaps in our mother, perhaps in our father, um, was a face that was in a sense looking for us. And that face-to-face -face, uh, relationship and intimacy and very importantly communion was central to the development of our early identity. And, and hopefully it was healthy. If it was an unhealthy interaction, uh, then, then we are probably dealing with the consequences to this very day. The point is, all of us, for all of our lives, are looking for a face that's looking for us. And that's a little clue about something much bigger that happened to Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, it's as if Jesus is looking for a face, looking for him, and he finds it in the face of his Father. And that communion and that relationship and that intimacy becomes the bedrock of his identity. And it's also the target that the devil wants to un unravel. Here's what I mean. At Jesus' baptism... His identity 
what it means to be the Son of God is animated by intimacy and relationship and communion with his Father. In other words, for Jesus, it went something like this. I know who I am when I'm looking at the Father's face, looking at me. That's when I'm fully expressing what it means to be the Son of God. That's when I am living fully under the Father's affection. That animates everything else for Jesus. Now keep that in your mind and go to the temptation because the devil wants to take Jesus's identity as the Son of God and extract communion with his Father from the center of it and replace instead, insert into that location, his strongest desires. He wants to eclipse his communion with the Father and replace it with his strongest desires. Why would the devil want to do that to Jesus? Well, at least two reasons. Uh, first, if our identity is determined by our desires, then those desires will eventually uh, enslave us. Um, I want to be very clear here, and I recognize that there's probably some discomfort right now. Um, your desires and mine matter. And we are not designed to be defined by them. And if we are defined by them, and if I look to my desires to tell me who I am, then those desires can very easily become the dictator of my life. And that is not freedom, that is enslavement. But then on the other hand, the devil's second aim is to disrupt the communion with God that Jesus enjoyed. Because if Jesus' identity is focused uh, uh, on communion with God, then his whole life is going to be animated by love. But on the other hand, if the devil can disrupt that, and if the devil can get Jesus focused primarily on himself, not on communion with God, but on his own desire, then then eventually his whole life is going to be animated not so much by love of someone outside him, but rather love of himself over and against those outside him. And as soon as, he can send, as the devil can center Jesus upon himself, it can lead to selfishness and narcissism, which is the root of all kinds of evil. So, temptation, on the one hand, is a battle of identity. And the question is, to what extent am I primarily defined by my desires, and to what extent am I learning to be defined by a close, and close relationship and communion with God as my Father? The, question to that, the answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. But then secondly, temptation is also a battle of methods. Uh, take a look at verse 5. This is the second temptation. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Okay, now this one looks more straightforwardly bad, right? Um, however, I want to show you that it is also very subtle. Again, go back to Jesus' baptism, and this time pay more attention uh, to specifically the two things that God says to Jesus. He says, 
on the one hand, this is my beloved son. And on the other hand, he says, with you I am well pleased. Now stay with me for a second, because when he says, this is my beloved son, that comes from the Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, it's a song about the king of Israel. But it's a very unique king of Israel. In the psalm, God says to the king of Israel, you are my son. And then he says, ask me, ask me for all the nations of the world and I will give them to you and you will lead them in justice. Now keep that in your mind because that's what's resonating when Jesus says, you are my son. He's thinking back to Psalm 2. It means that he's the king. But then the second thing that God says to Jesus is, with you I am well pleased. And that is an echo of another part of the Old Testament. It's an echo of Isaiah chapter 42. And in Isaiah chapter 42, God is speaking not so much about the king of Israel. He's speaking about somebody called the servant of the Lord. And the thing about the servant of the Lord character in Isaiah is that the servant of the Lord is going to fight against evil by suffering and, and by giving himself in sacrifice for the sake of the guilty. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is not going to win battles and things like that. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is going to go through a path of great suffering. Now bring all that back to Jesus' baptism. Jesus is God's son, which means he's the rightful king, and he uh, will bring justice to the world. He's going to defeat evil. But he's also God's servant at the same time, which means he's going to achieve all that, not by raging with the sword, but through suffering and death so that he can bring reconciliation to God's enemies. Now, all this means that Jesus' identity bore a giant mission. In your mind, take that back to the devil's temptation. Because in one way, the devil is offering Jesus something that God has already promised. God already promised that Jesus will eventually rule the nations. And the devil's offering, in a way, the same thing. But what's different is the how. What's different is the method. And what's different is the pathway to get there. The devil is offering power without the cross. He's offering authority without suffering. He's offering glory without sacrifice. In other words, the devil is offering power that is not accountable to love and to justice. And you need to feel the allure of this temptation. It's as if the devil is saying to Jesus and whispering in his ear, listen, Jesus, listen. It's as if the devil says, Jesus, I see great things in you. It's as if the, uh, the devil says to Jesus, this world would be, it would, you would be so great at running this world, Jesus. It's as if the devil says, just imagine the good that you could do, Jesus. And listen, Jesus, it's as if the devil says to Jesus, listen, I'm a kind of guy that gets things done. And I can give you power, and I can give you influence, and I can give you authority, and you will change the world, Jesus. It's as if the devil says to Jesus, and I can give you all of that without suffering and without the cost. And all I need is a touch of loyalty. All I, listen, 
It's as if the devil says to Jesus, just look the other way every now and then and be willing to compromise and play the game just a little bit. You got to be pragmatic, Jesus. Politics is the art of the possible. My methods may not always be pretty, but neither is making sausage. So give your loyalty to me because I'm the kind of guy that gets things done. I produce and I'm a winner and with me you'll win. Now, Emmanuel, this is the temptation to compromise our ethics in order to get power and to justify it by saying it is all in the pursuit of a good cause. And I fear, Emmanuel, that this is a temptation that is hiding in plain sight all around us. Because our society is in a moment when our trust is low and our fear is high and power feels more urgent than ethics and truth and justice and righteousness and all that the Lord stands for. And therefore, it is crucially important that we be a vigilant people. Temptation is a battle of identity. Are you defined by communion with God or by your strongest desires? On the other hand, temptation is a battle of method. Are you pursuing what you consider to be a good end, but by a corrupt path? Or on the other hand, are you willing to submit to God's path, even if it means sacrifice and suffering and apparent failure? The Lord's not afraid of apparent failure. That leads us to the last point. Uh, temptation is a battle of trust. This is the last temptation. Look at verse 9. Um, this time the, the devil changes tactics. He actually uses the Bible to tempt Jesus, um, which is clever. And what he does is he challenges Jesus to jump off the temple, and he backs it up with two promises from uh, uh, Psalm 91 uh, about how God's going to keep his people safe. Now, what's he playing at? Well, think with me. Jesus' identity is animated by his communion with God. And communion with God uh, rests on the bedrock of something called trust. We can also call it faith. And if you remove trust from that foundation, then communion and relationship and intimacy will just collapse like a like an unstable Jenga set, like a house of cards. And the devil knows this. And so what the devil does is he takes some pretty bold promises from the Bible. He holds them up and he says, hey, Jesus, um, are you sure you can really trust your father? Have you read recently what's in that book? Um, can you take him at his word? Uh, you know, the prudent thing to do, Jesus, is to test before you trust. Don't trust him test him. Now, Emmanuel, this is the temptation to hold God at arm's distance and to keep him just safe enough away so that we can evaluate without committing. So I might officially believe in God, but I want to keep my distance just a touch. I and it's the temptation to settle into a kind of permanent 
uh, skepticism or a moderate kind of coolness towards God. And I settle into this moderate skepticism, not because I'm honestly seeking the truth nearly so much as I want to retain a measure of control. And the problem is it sabotages the intimacy with God for which you were made. Now, I realize this does not sound so wicked, but Emmanuel, remember this. The human descent into evil does not begin with grave crimes. The human descent into evil begins because we are looking for a face that's looking for us. And instead of finding that face in God our Father, we desperately try to find it within ourselves, one way or the other. Our own uh, desires or our pursuit of power or our uh, sense of control. But as soon as we become the highest priority, then the devil can lead us into all manner of wickedness, and very often we won't even notice it's happening. But do you notice Jesus doesn't take the bait? Verse 12, he rejects testing God and instead he surrenders trust to God. He decided to take God at his word. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is quoting scripture the whole time. In verse 8, he quotes a scripture in a way that allows Jesus to uh, reject comfortable shortcuts to power and instead surrender himself to worshiping God and fearing him alone. And then in verse 4, instead of uh, centering his desires, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, our first reading, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but the second half of the verse in Deuteronomy says, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus is doing, the way he battles evil is he decenters himself and he radically centers God so that all that he is orbits around his Father in heaven and the communion that the Father has given him. But the thing is, by doing all of this and by rejecting evil, he was also embracing the cross. Because as soon as he rejected the devil, and as soon as he embraced communion with his Father, it led him inevitably to the cross. And at the cross, it looked like a defeat, but it wasn't a defeat. And if we uh, renounce, if we decenter self and center ourselves on communion with God, it will inevitably at times lead to suffering. But don't for a minute believe that that suffering is a failure. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and there at the cross, he battled evil to the infinite degree. But he was battling evil on the cross, not just for himself. He wasn't just battling for his own soul. He was battling for you, and he was battling for me. He was battling for all of us who have uh, sought, who have decentered God and centered upon ourselves. He was battling for all of us who have centered our own desires or grasped for power corruptly or who have uh, tried to protect ourselves and retain control and not trusted God. And he was battling for all of us who have rejected God and have wounded innumerable people around us. He was battling for us. And when he died upon the cross, he died as our representative and as our substitute. But in that moment, he defeated evil. And he rose again, offering us 
the communion with God for which we were made, that by rights only he deserves. He offers it to us so that all of us who are looking for a face that's looking for us can look at Jesus and find through his grace the face of God the Father looking at us with infinite affection. That is the communion for which we were made. And it is in that communion with the Father, that intimacy with the Father that Jesus came to give us, that then we'll have power to bring order and health to our desires, to see, to uh, engage with power in a healthy way, in a just manner, and to live our lives not grasping onto self-control, to uh, control over our lives, but rather opening our hands and living by trust and the love that comes from that. So friends, look at Jesus. He defeated evil for you. Let him defeat evil within you and then pick up your cross and follow him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.